It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the unravelling of Philip Hammond's budget and whether the United Kingdom can survive Brexit. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, employment correspondent Sarah O'Connor, Henry Mann's political correspondent and our Ireland correspondent Vincent Boland. Thank you all for joining. Philip Hammond delivered his first and last spring budget this week and it did not take long for it to become unstuck. With no white rabbits or fancy new policies, Focus rapidly turned to hikes in national insurance for the self-employed, or 15% of the UK's workforce. Mr Hammond announced he was raising their NI to be more in line with that of the employed out of fairness, but it was also to pay for an extra £2 billion in social care spending. In and outside of Parliament, anger has been growing all week at a measure that strikes at the heart of the Conservative entrepreneurial ideal. It was also awkwardly happened to be a Tory manifesto commitment. At least 20 Conservative MPs are thought to be pretty unhappy with this, as are significant sections of the Tory press. So Sarah O'Connor, before we get into the politics of all this, these NI changes are not the most straightforward of thing. Can you just begin by laying out what they are and whether you think it makes economic sense? Yes, they do make sense. I mean, if you think about it in a completely technocratic fairness sort of way, then it makes perfect sense. So at the minute, self-employed people pay a national insurance contribution rate of 9%. Employees like us pay a national insurance contribution rate of 12%. But actually, the stuff that we receive in return from the state is basically the same. And so Philip Hammond's argument was kind of twofold. One, this isn't fair to the 85% who pay more tax but don't receive anything differently. And two, that this tax differential, the fact that actually self-employment is taxed at a lower rate, is kind of skewing the whole labour market and it's incentivising more self-employment to be created than is really necessary or particularly healthy. So those are the two sort of arguments for it. And then the real reason that he's done it is because he needs the money. And he can see the way in which these trends are going. Self-employment has been rising very rapidly. There's no reason to think it's going to stop. And therefore, the longer he leaves this unchecked, the bigger the hole in the public finances will become. Mr Hammond is very interested in what I think he calls the old economy versus the new economy. And as you said, self-employed has been the big boaster behind the jobs miracle, as some have called it, over the past couple of years. So this is something he's been looking at. We knew this might happen, but the timing of it is a bit odd. Yes, the timing is very odd. And the reason for that is that the government has also commissioned Matthew Taylor, who used to be Tony Blair's advisor, to do a big review into the changing world of work, which involves the growth of self-employment. And Matthew Taylor is looking right now into whether the rules are fair, whether they're up to date, whether employment law has kept up with the changing world of work. And it would have made perfect sense to wait for him to come back with his ideas, which I think will include some things that will be supportive of the self-employed, and then lump this tax increase in with that so that there was something that felt a little bit more coherent and where if you are one of the 15% who's seeing your tax go up, you at least get the sense that you're receiving something in return. 
So, George Parker, that's the economics of the changes, which sound pretty fair and progressive, and the FT had endorsed them in its editorial this week. But, of course, budgets always unravel in the political detail, and pretty much as soon as the budget was delivered, questions were being asked, well, hang on a minute, didn't the Conservatives say it in their manifesto, no rises in national insurance? And you were there listening to Philip Hammond's spokespeople in the huddle afterwards. What was the atmosphere like? And can you tell us how it's all happened over the past few days? Well, first thing to say is, unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember the last time there was a budget like this where the instant reaction from Tory MPs was so negative. And that was Norman Lamont's budget in 1993 when he introduced VAT on domestic fuel bills. And I remember people coming out of the chamber and saying, this doesn't sound right. And there was exactly the same feeling after this one. As you say, immediately after the budget statement, the journalists all gather for the post-budget huddle, so-called, just outside the chamber in the press gallery. And Philip Hammond's press team were sent in to defend this. And you could tell in the course of this briefing, which went on for more than an hour, that the whole thing was starting to unravel. Because while we were being briefed, journalists were looking up the Tory manifesto, finding four separate references in the manifesto to an explicit commitment not to put up national insurance contributions. There were no asterisks, no caveats, no reference to class one or class four next. It was a straightforward promise not to put up national insurance. And the defence that they come up with was this strange idea that since the government introduced so-called tax lock in law after the election and that they clarified what they meant. Therefore, they'd somehow negated what was in the manifesto. In other words, they'd already broken the manifesto promise. No one had noticed, so that was all right. Unfortunately, it wasn't all right. And uh, we're in the course of seeing the Chancellor, I think, having to make probably quite a ragged retreat on this over the next six months. And it looks as if they're going to delay or parcel it in with what Sarah was saying about the Taylor review coming out later in the summer, because as you said, they need the money for this. And one of the big budget announcements was about social care, which has been all over the headlines, some very uncomfortable stories for the government. So this was a way of paying for this. But if they delay it, can they still make the sums add up? Well, they can do. And this is the odd thing. I think Sarah was making this point that this change won't come in until April 2018. They don't need the money until April 2018 which is why the legislation is going to be introduced in the autumn. So the question is, why didn't he just wait until the Taylor review came out and bundle it all up with a package of benefits for the self-employed as well as taxing them? I spoke to Matthew Taylor, the author of this report on Sunday, because I was fishing around on this story before the budget, and it didn't seem to make sense to me, and it didn't make sense to him either, because he said, well, I think they'll probably do this eventually, but only as part of a wider set of reforms. So... It looked wrong before the budget and looks even more wrong afterwards. Sarah, can you just explain this class one, class four and also class two, just to make it very helpful, um, Nick's for people? Because George Osborne has already made some changes to this, which is what the Tories are saying now as a bit of a get out clause that changes have already been made. Nobody noticed these changes so we can just make more changes. Yeah, so Class 2 NICS was a type of national insurance contribution that the self-employed also had to pay. Well, they're still paying it, but it will be abolished. And this was George Osborne's announcement, I think, in the last budget mm. or possibly the one before. So it was a really strange tax, the Class 2 one, because it was just a flat fee. It's like £140, something like that. And obviously anything that is a kind of flat fee is extremely regressive, right? And so George Osborne announced a year ago that he was going to abolish it. And so Philip Hammond, setting aside the political get-out cause, it also was helpful to him to try and parcel up the distributional impact of what he did. So he basically said, look, we're going to increase class four. Obviously, that on its own would hit everyone who's self-employed. But he lumped into his analysis the fact that George Osborne had already decided to scrap class two. And he assessed the impact of those two measures together on people and said that anyone who's self-employed but earning less than about £16,000 a year will still be net better off. 
I personally think that's a slightly cheeky way to go about it. It's very cheeky. That was You're right, that was one of the other defences that was being offered immediately after the budget. But you can't have it both ways. You can't claim the credit as George Osborne did for doing something a year ago and then try to take the credit again a year later. That's already been banked by people, that announcement. The fact is the changes announced by Philip Hammond will leave about two and a half million people on average £240 a year worse off. Yeah. So the backlash, as you said, George, was pretty quick and rapid. And there's about 20 Conservative MPs who have already said they're unhappy with this. Now, they're not going to vote down a finance bill because that would probably bring the end of the government if that happened because Theresa May only got a 12-strong Tory majority here. What can they do apart from public pressure? Because there's all sorts of talks of trying to amend it or what have you. And how serious is this for the government? Well, I'm not sure whether this is a good or a bad thing, but the interesting thing about national insurance is it's not legislated for through the finance bill, which, as you say, is a blockbuster piece of legislation that you can't amend without bringing the government down. This has to go through separate legislation. And this, I think, is the political room for manoeuvre, I think, that Philip Hammond has now, because the bill to do these changes won't come in until after the summer. That basically gives Philip Hammond six months to sort this mess out. That's essentially what Theresa May was saying in her press conference in Brussels this week. We're going to do this in the autumn. We're going to wrap it up with a load of uh, other measures. Sarah mentioned the Matthew Taylor Review, parental rights and all the rest of it, to try to make this package more acceptable to Tory MPs when they come to vote on it. The problem is, no matter how much supporting structure you put around the policy, it still does what the Tories said they would not do, which is putting up national insurance contributions. I still think this is a looming problem for the government, no matter how far they kick it into the long grass. And it's the optics as well, right? I mean, to target the people who are the strivers, mm. the entrepreneurs, the white van men, the you know, those are kind of Tory voting people. And I was speaking to lots of self-employed people yesterday, from Uber drivers to consultants, barristers, and they were all just saying, well, you know, why are the Tories kicking the hand that feeds them? Yeah. And the other interesting thing about that is it's the first time since she became prime minister that Theresa May has found herself on the wrong side of the Daily Mail. That's a big moment politically. It may not seem much to some of our listeners, but Theresa May goes out of her way to court the Daily Mail and she's got on the wrong side of them on this, the wrong side of the Sun, the Telegraph. And the Sun now is running a campaign against this tax, the Spike Van Man campaign and all the rest of it. So it's a difficult position, not just politically, but in terms of media relations. And it calls into question the competence of the government. And that's a dangerous thing to happen just as she's about to embark on this really big test of her authority, the Brexit negotiations, of course. I was going to just mention that because by the time we record this time next week, there's a good chance that Article 50 could have been sent and the countdown clock on Brexit has begun. The other thing that raises the question, George, is the relationship between Number 10 and the Treasury that Mrs May and Mr Hammond are thought to be pretty close. But there are differences there, and I think Number 10 have been very unhappy with this because this is exactly what they didn't want, a distracting policy announcement. And as you said, those crucial supporters, her outriders in the Daily Mail and the Sun, are now against her. But she's not going to sack the Chancellor over this because, for one thing, there's not another obvious person to do it. I don't think there's anyone else she would trust to do it. No. I mean, there have been tensions between Number 10 and the Treasury. The autumn statement, there was a lot of tension because Treasury is quite used to doing its own thing when it comes to budgets. And someone was telling me that Philip Hammond felt Number 10 had been all over him at the time of the autumn statement. I was told that the preparations for this one were more harmonious. There was transparency between number 10 and number 11. The get out for Philip Hammond potentially on this is because number 10 was so closely involved with this budget, they can't wash their hands of the fallout of it. But that, as we know in politics, doesn't normally stop people blaming each other when things go wrong. And I think what went wrong here particularly was Theresa May said, we need money for social care, for business rate relief and for my pet projects free schools, which might one day become grammar schools, which incidentally the Chancellor had pencil in a billion pounds for in his Red Book, uh, well, not previously announced. And Philip Hammond, being the good accountant that he is, although, sorry, I should say he 
he was never actually an accountant, the good businessman he was, spreadsheet film, decided that the Red Book should add up to show the markets that he's serious about maintaining fiscal discipline as we go into Brexit. So he had to find the money from somewhere. He did the national insurance contribution thing. And I'm sure there'll be people in number 10 saying, you know, why did he do it? And finally, Sarah, these white van men who the Sun are campaigning for on this, how drastic are these changes going to be for them? Because it doesn't hit people who earn only 16,000 or so, if I'm right. And as George was saying, it's not going to come in for the near future. So it does look as if it could have quite a soft landing, this change. Yeah, I think it's more about the principle of the yeah. thing than the actual amount and of the money. And the optics, as you said. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the cash amounts, you mentioned that the sort of average loss will be about £240 a year. But it will hit the higher earning self-employed people more. If you're earning about 50 grand a year, which you might well be as a white van man, then you might lose up to £500, £600 a year. If you're on sort of 17000 if you're a taxi driver, then you'll lose maybe £20, £30 a year. The United Kingdom is in a pretty perilous state at the moment. The calls for a second Scottish independence referendum are growing pretty much every day, while the recent elections in the Northern Ireland Assembly have shown a rise in support for Sinn Féin as the prospect of a hard border with the Republic of Ireland is on the agenda, with Article 50 due to be triggered possibly next week or the week after. One of the greatest questions on everyone's lips in Westminster is whether the UK can survive Brexit. So, Henry Mans, let's begin with Scotland. You've reported in the FT this week that it's now more about when, not if, there will be another Scottish independence referendum. Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, has been talking up this prospect for quite a long time now. She's going to actually put the money where her mouth is on this and say, now's the time for Scotland to decide. Does it want to be in the UK or does it want to be in the EU? And for unionists, this is a pretty worrying prospect. Yeah, Theresa May made a big thing about caring about the union, about Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland and their relationship to England. She has the legal power to stop a second referendum. What we've reported this week is that she's very unlikely to withhold permission for Scotland to have a second referendum. So if Nicola Sturgeon asks for one and the signs are that she will, we are going to have a second vote. Because I think if the SNP pass it through Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, it would be very hard for Theresa May to say you can't have a referendum because it would just give even more grist to the nationalist mill in that situation. But the thing that Theresa May would have the control over is the timing of this, because obviously Nicola Sturgeon, if she's going to have another independence referendum, wants to have it before the UK leaves the EU, whereas Theresa May, I think, would want it the other way around. Exactly. So if if it's a vote before Britain leaves the EU, then Nicola Sturgeon can say this protects the status quo. If you vote for independence, we may have to drop out of the EU for a bit, but basically you're getting independence and EU membership. Whereas as soon as Britain's left, then it's much easier for the unionists to make the case of you'll be all on your own. You'll be outside the UK and outside the EU and Spain might block you coming back in the EU. I think the important thing here is that Downing Street should be wise to to the details of any vote. If you think about David Cameron and his approach both to the Scottish independence referendum of 2014 and to the EU referendum, people say he might have been a bit too blasé, a bit too confident about the results. So he gave ground. He allowed there to be a very long run-up to uh, the 2014 Scottish independence referendum, which allowed the nationalists to gain momentum. He allowed the Brexiters to really outfox him on some of the issues about whether there was going to be perda before the EU referendum and other kind of technical issues. And this time, 
you'd think Theresa May's government will actually try and hardball rather than just say, well, we'll probably win. So let's not worry too much about the details. Indeed. And Vincent Boland, the situation is no less uncertain in Ireland. Obviously, as soon as the Brexit vote happened last year, the prospect of some change in the new relationship between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland was raised. And then we've had these assembly elections, which again have shown this rise in support of Sinn Féin. It's not all about Brexit, but Brexit is a very worrying development. Oh, absolutely. Brexit has completely upended the status quo in Ireland, north and south, actually. The Assembly election last week saw a huge turnout for Sinn Féin and a stay-at-home protest vote almost by a lot of supporters of the Democratic Unionist Party, which has been the ascendant Unionist Party in the north for the last 20 years or so. Now, the trigger for the election was actually a sort of public spending scandal that has badly tainted the DUP, but still, it was Brexit that motivated a lot of the nationalist vote, which was up four percentage points on the day. And the result of the election has moved Brexit centre stage in the north in a way that it hasn't been up to now. And at the same time, the government in Dublin is really battling to get the message across to Europe that Brexit is going to affect Ireland more than any other country in the EU, and that Ireland is a kind of special case in that respect. And I think that, that it's getting a lot of traction in Europe for that. But in the Irish sense, both North and South, Brexit is really taking centre stage now in a really dramatic way. And the two issues to do with Ireland are, first of all, the border. This is the immigration question, because I think nobody wants to have a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But this question of how you deal with immigration between the two still remains on the table. And the other one, which is far more complex, is about the customs union, because the Republic of Ireland can't be in the EU customs union and essentially the UK customs union. So it's going to have to try and decide a way between that. And if there have to be goods of origin checks and all that, sort of thing. Again, it raised the prospect of a hard border and James Brokenshire, the Northern Ireland Secretary, has been out to Ireland several times to talk about this. But again, there's not been much from the government explaining how they're going to square these rather difficult circles. No, absolutely. And the thing that really annoys the government in Dublin in particular, and the whole policy-making establishment in Dublin, is this blasé way in which, both before the EU referendum and afterwards, British ministers would come out and say, oh, there will be no return to a hard border, don't worry about that to which the Irish would always say, well, if, if the referendum was about taking back control of our borders, how can you possibly say that? And how can you deliver a non-hard border while at the same time taking control of borders, leaving the single market, and also probably leaving the customs union? So that's the great unanswered question that the Irish want answers to, I think, from the British government, and they're not getting them. And it's going to make the, the whole Brexit exit negotiations really difficult from an Irish perspective. And from a British one too, I think. The whole thing of this, Henry, is on the party political side that England is very conservative at the moment with a conservative prime minister. Scotland is SNP territory. And as Vincent was saying, you've now got a big rise in support of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. So the idea of the union, of having these countries together, it's looking more and more difficult as the politics of each nation are going in different directions. And I suppose Theresa May does talk about herself as prime minister of the UK and she's leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party so still believes in the union, which is, it seems a nice idea, but there is a real prospect that actually it's not practical anymore, given these countries have such diverging political views and stance of their voters. I think you could argue that British politics is still really impacted by the lack of money. I mean, it's not possible for a chancellor to stand up and say, OK, I understand there are some problems in Northern Ireland. 
have a huge pot of money. There was a little bit of money in the budget, but not a lot. Yeah, and that's actually just worked out on a formula of how much spending goes up on things like education and health. On non-devolved matters, it then just feeds through into Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. I think the Brexiters in their campaign were very clear there wasn't a choice. If you voted for Brexit, that didn't mean that you were voting for the end of the union. And Theresa May has made that claim as well. And for a long while, it looked that Scotland in particular would be not grossly more inclined towards independence after Brexit. I mean, even though people there voted to stay in margin of 62 to 38, that actually the increased uncertainty and risks around Brexit convinced some people in polls to move away from support for independence. There was a poll this week showing 50-50 support for and against independence. And also that over half of voters, a very small majority, 52, wanted a vote on the terms of a Brexit deal. Now, that is very different to the view in England, where people, I think, have basically said the first referendum was so traumatic, we don't want another one. And so you do have diverging expectations of how this Brexit process is going to play out. And I think that it's incredibly difficult, just in pragmatic terms, for Theresa May, who's trying to juggle with things like a new custom system, a new immigration system, how you get very complex bills through the House of Lords and House of Commons, and then to have to think about another independence referendum is a, is a nightmare. And the other problem for unionists as well is that the hard-headed economic arguments are actually very much where they were last time in terms of Scotland because in 2014 it was the question about the pound and the currency and oil revenues. All those questions are the same again this time and actually more exaggerated. The oil revenues from North Sea Oil have gone way down and nowhere near the estimates the SNP said they would be under an independent Scotland. But we've moved beyond that in politics in a way now. Those arguments don't necessarily seem to persuade people as they once did. So the problem for unionists is to make an emotional case, which, as you said, might not connect with people because of the different ways they feel about the EU. I think if there's any time for a project fear against (laughs) Scottish independence, it's now, because you can say, look, you don't know whether you're going to be able to get back in the EU as an independent country. The oil industry doesn't look like a cash cow. And yet they've already played that card. And we are potentially 18 months, two years away from an independence referendum. So the unionist side has a chance to think about what went wrong last time and how it can do better this time. But you'd have to say that they don't have an obvious uh, call to national unity between England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, given that the Brexit vote's gone against Scottish voters. And Vincent, I guess this is a question that would have been unthinkable even a year or two years ago. But is there any prospect of a united Ireland, of Northern Ireland leaving the Union in the foreseeable future? I think the constitutional position of Northern Ireland inside the Union is completely up in the air, Seb. And that's what the Brexit referendum has done. And I think that a point that is very rarely mentioned in London or discussed in London is the extent to which this Brexit outcome has resulted in a kind of clash of various nationalisms. And Theresa May lashes out at Scottish nationalists and Irish nationalists from time to time and says that the union is sacrosanct and she'll not let divisive nationalists undermine the case for the union. But the elephant in the room there is English nationalism. You know, the, the Brexit referendum was fundamentally and almost entirely a manifestation of English nationalism. And that's never mentioned. And this is what Scotland, I think, and also Sinn Féin and the Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland, and also you know, the Dublin government to a certain extent, this is what they're all competing against now and clashing with. And I think that Westminster doesn't seem to understand that, actually. And this is where the constitutional position of Northern Ireland inside the Union and also of Scotland starts to unravel, it seems to me. And finally, Vincent, the other question, what's going to happen in the Northern Ireland Assembly? Because they've got a couple of weeks now to put a government together or they have the prospect of Westminster direct rule being enforced, which would certainly help Sinn Féin in that situation. What do you think is going to happen there? I 
have a feeling that there will be a devolved executive put in place because I think that both Sinn Féin and the DUP have a lot to lose if they don't do so. Sinn Féin has just won a huge mandate and I think that it needs to use that in a sensible way and it seems to me that the sensible way to use that is to go into a new executive with that enhanced mandate and to be able to compete on a level playing field with the DUP. And I think that the DUP needs to be seen to be unifying behind Arlene Foster and putting the electoral wounds behind it, etc. And the risk for both parties, if there is no new executive, I mean, technically there could be a second election. And I wouldn't rule that out entirely, although it's probably unlikely to change the result greatly. So that's one option. But the other one then is direct rule. And I think that both parties have a lot to lose if direct rule is imposed, not least from the fact that, certainly from Sinn Féin's perspective, but also from the DUP's perspective, the one thing that Westminster is likely to impose on Northern Ireland during a period of direct rule is economic austerity, which both of them have been relatively successfully fending off for the last few years. And I think that that would be electorally damaging for the two parties. So I think that the odds are in favour of a new executive, although perhaps not within the deadline of another two weeks. Wouldn't they be able to blame austerity on Westminster and therefore avoid electoral punishment themselves? Yes, I mean, they certainly would. I just wonder whether that's the way voters would read it, though, and whether that's the way the two parties would see it. I mean, it's a very cynical way for the two parties to submit to the whole austerity agenda from Westminster, and I wonder whether they'd be ready to do that. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. 365 day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.